Welcome, this is Jessica Ortner and our time together is dedicated to feeling good within all of life's complexities. We'll be going on a wandering path, exploring topics like spirituality, productivity, and personal fulfillment. Because happiness is not a destination, it's an adventure. So welcome to Adventures in Happiness. Hello and welcome to episode 27. Thank you so much for joining me once again. We have author Ryan Holiday. He is back again. I invited him back because I just finished reading his new book and oh my goodness, it's so good. This is what I love about Ryan. A lot of people talk about how to become successful and yes, we want those tools. They're the sexy ones. But Not many people talk about what happens after you've had a little success. How can that success backfire? So in this interview, Ryan teaches how keeping your ego in check can lead to even greater success, but also what to be aware of once you've already experienced some success. It's a really fascinating conversation. And if anybody is entitled to have a big ego, or at least I'd understand if he did have a big ego, it would be Ryan. Uh, Let me just tell you a little bit about him again. uh, Ryan dropped out of college at 19 to work with bands like Linkin Park, becoming the prodigy of one big ego and then another and another, Robert Greene, Tucker Max, Dov Charney, and hit the career success jackpot so fast and so many times. By age 21, he was the marketing director of American Apparel. By age 24, a controversial best-selling author. And by age 26, a marketing agency founder with clients like Google, Mark Echo, and Tony Robbins. He, Ryan has had a lot of success, and he's also helped a lot of people become successful. And that's what's great about Ryan, is he's not only talking about his own experience, but he has played such a big role in helping other people become successful that he sees again and again how the ego can be harmful. So check out um, the book, listen to what he has to say. It's fascinating. If you love it, share it. This is an act of love. So spread the love, send it to your friends, send it to your family. I know a lot of people can benefit from this interview. And that's it. Enjoy. Hey, Ryan, welcome back. Yeah, it's good to be virtually back. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I'm excited to speak with you. I read your whole book, congratulations, Thank first you. off. It's called Ego is the Enemy. And I want to start off our interview with the question that you start the book off with, which is who am I to write a book about ego? So Ryan, who are you? Why did you feel like you were uh, qualified to tackle this big topic? It, it's an interesting question. And I It's not one I think I would have asked if I was picking up the book being written by someone else. But I think we tend to be very concerned about like who's telling us things versus whether those things are true or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's especially true when that when when what something is saying challenges us or some deeply held beliefs. So. I I guess I sort of realized that if I'm going to write a book about ego that is going to call certain traits out or, you know, criticize certain things in other people, you can't really do that if you don't also hold yourself up to that same Mm -hmm. criticism or standard. And and obviously, I've always tried to do that in my own life. And I, I think with this book, I wanted to 
I wanted to look at the way that we, myself included, get in our own way. And we we have this sort of haze of ego that is standing between us and other people and uh, what we're trying to do. There's a great line in in one of the, the Alcoholics Anonymous books where um, the, the guy sort of defines ego as a conscious separation from and, you know, from what, like from from like everything, from other people, from your work, from your happiness, from, uh, you, you know, from stillness, from it's it's a separation from all the things that make life great. Ego is sort of this prote- negatively protective bubble that prevents us from doing that thing. And I, as, as an ambitious person who 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 works a lot, I I I suffer from that as much as anyone else. Right. Well, you mentioned that you talked about how the ambition that you had was leading you uh, to you were overworking and it was taking mm-hmm. a toll on your life. So it seems like two two things here. First, I want to start with everybody has an ego, right? Yeah. Right. So we all have an ego. Um, what is the relationship between having an ego and having ambition? Sure. So I think. I think it's important to make the distinction between like the ego, you know, a ego and sort of egotistic traits and that I'm I'm referring more towards the latter, right? Mm-hmm. Like Freud Freud has a definition of the ego, there's sort of in in an ego is, is sort of a term also in some eastern philosophy as well now, but I I'm talking about like when we're arrogant, when we're selfish, when we're uh delusional, when we um when we think we're better than everyone else, right? The, we all have those traits as well, and they make our work very difficult. And I think the problem is when we're ambitious people, we are, are by saying I'm trying to. Most people don't even try, right? They don't even try to do anything. So by 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 striving to improve yourself or by striving to change the world in some way. It, there's a little bit of ego in that, right? Because mm-hmm. you're you're making a distinction between you and everyone else, and it it follows from that that often we start to feel better than other people. We're so and or our work is so important to us that we treat other people as being unimportant because they're not as important as the things that we have prioritized, right? So I think, um, and, and I guess the other part of this is. What about when we're really talented and that talent gets recognized or rewarded or we start to be, you know, distinguished for what we do, then ego is particularly tempting because it's almost as if other people are forcing, not forcing it, but they're put, they're like, you're Feeding so it. great. Yeah. You're so great. You're amazing. We love you. You know, it's, that is where you have to really be protective, um, against giving into ego because if you don't other people will 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 foist it upon you right when i read about ego like i read a lot of eckhart tolle's book he talks about mm-hmm. ego in a in a different sense uh and and you know when i would think about ego i would see how if i have a lot of ego in my business or how i'm approaching life i can see the negative consequences on how it feels uh, spiritually, right? It doesn't feel good. But what's so interesting about this book is that you talk about how um, how ego really impacts someone's reality and how it can backfire. Because I think we a lot of people think, well, but if I'm aggressive and if I'm entitled and if I'm confident, aren't those the traits I need to be successful? And so here you're showing, you, you, you have a lot of stories where you show how 
that's actually not true. Can you kind of speak to people who believe those are qualities that they need in order to be successful? Well, I like that you brought up Eckhart Tolle because I think he, he he shows how it's not just your business. It's also like you have to realize that you're not your thoughts, mm-hmm. right? Just because you think something doesn't mean that it's true. And so I think a lot of and, and so we, we, we can become prisoners of our own thoughts, both positive and negative. And I think, you know, that idea of like, I've got to believe in myself. I've got to have this vision for the future. I've got to tell myself that I'm great, that I'm going to do it, all this. Oftentimes, what happens is that we tell ourselves these things over and over again, and we start to think that they're true without necessarily doing the work that goes into making them true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just because, you know, just because you have, um, I, I guess what I say in the book, and, and part of this comes from a, from a, a one of the pioneers of mixed martial arts, his name is Frank Shamrock. He's saying sort of ego or confidence is earned. Like you earn confidence based on what you do and the work that you've put in and the the thinking that you do. But ego is sort of stolen. Ego is like what you wish was true or what you hope to earn in the future. And it's sort of like taking these things on credit. And that's, as we know, credit cards are very dangerous because we spend more than we can afford. And I think ego has a similar effect. So I think confidence is is essential. And there's no way that you can do great things if you don't have any faith in yourself. But that faith can't be, it's not like a religious faith. faith. It can't be faith without evidence. It has to be faith based on your experiences and your track record and what you're committed to do. Right. I'll admit that I've had moments where ego was running the show, and I don't think I had the awareness that that was going on until my ego was hurt. You know, yeah. like your ego gets hurt, and then you go, wow, actually, there's this, I need to look closely at this. Is there another way to check in with ourselves to see if our ego is, is you know, running the show without it being hurt, or is that part of the process? Well, one of the exercises that that's in the book, it comes from Adam Smith, who most people probably know as an economist, you know, the, the wealth of nations, the idea of, of, of basically capitalism sort of stems from him. But he also wrote this great book of moral philosophy called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And one of the things in the book, he calls it the indifferent spectator. And he basically says, like, before you're going to do something or when you're trying to evaluate your own behavior, pretend there is an indifferent spectator or an indifferent observer just standing sort of there over in the side of the room looking at you. And how how would they judge this choice that you're going to make? Would you or and how would you react to someone being in the room? Would you feel like you need to rationalize what you're doing? Would you be embarrassed? Would you try to hide it from them? Um, or would you be proud of it? Would you be able to sort of do what you're going to do you know, with without any hesitation. And so um, I think I think what he's saying there is one, make sure that this doesn't just jive with like your sort of personal selfish instincts, but also how you would like to be like what, what you're is this consistent with the person that you see yourself as being? I think that's a good way to look at it. But also it's just like, hey, what if you just pause for like one second before you do things? And I find often, you know, like I'll get an email from someone and it'll make me really upset. And if I respond right away, it will be a it will be a an egotistical response. You know, the sort of like how dare you or like I I, I need to you know that instinct like I need to own this person and like put them in their place for for saying this, right? That's ego. But if I put the email away for a minute, 
um, if I take a break, I'll usually come back and be like, all right, they probably don't know what they're saying. It's probably unintentional. I don't really want to get into a whole thing about it. And I'll say something much calmer. And actually, Lincoln was famous for this. Abraham Lincoln, there's all these letters that we have that he wrote to people who betrayed him, who screwed him over, who did something totally unacceptable. He would write them this letter and then he would take the letter, sign it and put it in an envelope in his desk and never mail it. And mm. I imagine there's very few of those letters that he wished he had sent, you know? And I think that's the same for a lot of our sort of instinctual emotional reactions to things. Very rarely are we like, I'm really glad I yelled at that person. It definitely made things better. Right. A few weeks ago, I I interviewed Ariana Huffington and she she said something that like a, a saying that her mom would always say to her, which I loved, which is failure isn't the opposite of success. It's part of success. Sure. And I I agree with her. I think that's true. But as I was reading your book, you said something great. You said the, the difference between wisdom and uh, ignorance or well, you said ego was the swing vote between wisdom yeah. and ignorance. So with this idea of learning from failure, how we approach failure, how does ego play a role in that? Well, in a couple of ways, I think most of the time uh, when we fail, we don't see ourselves as having failed. We th we blame it on someone else or some external factor. Right. So it's mm -hmm. like I did everything right, but then blank happened. And so that's that's just a way of of deferring having learned from this thing, because you're you're not you're you're taking the wrong lesson from this. Or, or you're you're deliberately um, blocking any ability to learn from a given situation. I think that's one of them. And then one of my favorite sort of adages is this: um, it goes like the first rule of holes is that when you're in one, you should stop digging. And um, <laughs> I I think ego does that too, right? So we mess up or we do something wrong, but we're so like embarrassed by it, or we're too busy to notice, or you know whatever it is. And so we just keep doing that thing. We're like, it's almost as if we're saying like, I know this is wrong, but I don't want to learn from it right now. I want to make it much worse, right? Like even that idea, like in, in addiction that you have to hit bottom, it's essentially saying like, I know this is bad, but I'm not actually ready to do anything about it. I want to experience more painful consequences before I'm willing to listen. And so I think when, when I say ego is the swing vote, it's sort of that it's, it's that, you know, if we can say this is bad enough, I'm going to learn from it. Or we say, you know, this this was a screw up. I'm willing to own that. And then I'm not going to do this again. Or we say, you know, it was so and so's fault or next time it will be different or they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to prove them wrong. Those are sort of egotistical responses that ultimately make, you know, uh, makes everything worse. worse. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so you mentioned in the book Lance Armstrong as an example. Yeah. I mean, so he he knew that he cheated, right? Like he knew that he took performance enhancing drugs and he knew that lots of other people took performance enhancing drugs. And I think he obviously justified it to himself that everyone was doing it. And it's fine. And we don't need to argue that. But the problem was once he started to get caught, he didn't say, hey, I've been caught. I'm you know, I'm I've made hundreds of millions of dollars. It's time for me to to walk away. He said, how dare you? And he fought it incredibly aggressively, even though he knew that it wasn't true. 
right? Or he, he knew that it was true. He sued people. Um, he 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 attacked people in the he like he he literally destroyed the people who were saying what he knew was true about him. And I think that's part of the reason why, when it was unequivocally proven that he did take drugs, there was so little empathy for him and so sort of so much anger about it. And and ultimately, he ended up losing a lot more than he would have lost had he come forward at that time. And 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 I think we do this the equivalent of that in our own lives. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Someone someone points out a flaw in ourselves and we don't say, like, thank you for doing that. I'm going to work on that. We we yell at them or we get upset or or we we kick them out of our lives for having dared to confront us about something. And, and that's, that's out of insecurity and, 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 uh, and fear. Right. Right. I think all of us know someone who just is never wrong and it like they think they're never wrong. They'll never admit they're wrong. And it's just, it's a pet peeve of mine. It drives me nuts. So, and obviously you're wrong. Like, obviously you're wrong. Even even if you're right more than most people, you're still <laughs> you're still wrong. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 percent of the time, which means that some of the situations you're going to be wrong in. But um, it's it's so hard for people to admit that because their identity is tied up in them being sort of flawlessly correct all the time. Right. So then, Ryan, if ego is the enemy, what's our ally? What are we striving for? You know, I've done a lot of podcasts. No one has ever asked me that. Um, that's a great question. Um, I think what the so this is so, um, somewhat interesting to people, hopefully. But so originally the book was going to be about humility. That's what I was really interested in. And that's what I wanted to write a book about. And what I found was most of the stories about humble people kind of sounded the same and they weren't particularly inspiring. Right. It's like so and so did great things, but um Nobody knew about it. You know, like it's not like, <laughs> oh, I want to be that person, right? And there, there's a, there's this amazing sermon. I'm not a religious person, but this uh, his name is Dr. Reverend Sam Wells. And he has this uh, sermon called Outrageous Humility. Um, and basically he's saying, like, we admire humble people, but our worry is that being humble won't get us to where we want to go in life. And so I think he's totally right, and that's why I think— I was having trouble writing about humility. And so I thought, what's the opposite of humility? Ego is the opposite of humility, right? Or, you know, and maybe you could argue that feeling that you're a, you know, a worthless piece of crap is the opposite of, of ego. And humility is right there in the middle. It's like the perfect middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to write about ego, which I feel like makes humility impossible um, and happens to undermine our success so to me like uh, humility is like perfect self-awareness it's not uh, there's a quote from Goethe where he's saying like a true crime is to value yourself at more than you are and to value yourself as as less than you are and so I think humility is that sort of perfect equilibrium of of being aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are and owning them and being happy with them Mm mm-hmm Absolutely. So then, so let's talk about humility, ego, and being a student. So a lot of times when people think about being a good student, they probably picture themselves in a classroom. But 
as we know, especially those who are listening to this podcast, I we attract people to listen to these podcasts because they do want to grow and improve themselves. How does uh, ego and humility play when it comes to what role does it play when it comes to being a good student? I like that you point out the thing about the classroom because I think smart people make the distinction between uh, schooling and education. Mm-hmm. And education is, you know, listening to podcasts or reading books or spending your time around in- interesting people or going to events or, you know, maybe it includes the classroom, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're in a classroom, you're being educated. Um, and I I think like the beginner's mindset, like a, adopting the mindset of a student, someone who's always learning and feels like like they have a lot left to learn is inherently a humble attitude and inherently an attitude that keeps ego away. There's a quote from Epictetus, who's a Stoic philosopher, and he's saying, um, one cannot learn that which they think they already know. And so that's what's so great about the student mindset is if you admit that there's stuff left for you to learn, you're going to keep learning. If you think you've learned all that you can learn, you're right. You can't learn anything else. Um, And And the reality is the more that you learn, the more there is left to learn. There's this wonderful quote from John Wheeler, who's a physicist. He's saying, you know, as the island of our knowledge grows, so too does the shoreline of our ignorance. And he's meaning that every time you learn about something new, it exposes you to new, rich ideas that you didn't know about that you then can learn. And that's what that's how I've tried to live my own life. But I think the, the people that we really admire that have accomplished amazing things, it's primarily because they were so curious and they loved learning so much. Right. And there's a and, and like you said, humility is a part of, of learning, being able to admit that you don't know everything. And you have a great story about the guitarist of, from Metallica. Can you share that one? Yeah. Kirk Hammett, who is the the who became the lead guitarist in Metallica when he was chosen to be in the band, so it was literally, it was like sort of being drafted, um, like a professional athlete being drafted into the pros. The, one of the first things he did, even though he was a really good guitar player, is he 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 found a, a guitar teacher and he became a student all over again. He happened to pick this uh, guitar teacher named Joe Satriani, who at the time was just an instructor. He didn't know that that instructor would go on to himself be one of the greatest guitar players of all time. But I just love the idea of this professional musician still going to guitar lessons the same way that a 17 year old who's just picking up the guitar for the first time might. And he went to these lessons for years, even as he was recording albums for Metallica, he was going there and practicing the guitar parts with his music teacher. Um, and that's what's made it's the fact that he remains even now a student of his craft, even though he could perfectly be, he could be perfectly justified in, you know, telling himself that he, he's one of the best in the world. He, he remains this student and that's, I think that's why he's so good at it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, as I was reading your book, I was taking notes and writing questions. And to be completely honest, I have no idea what I mean by this question. But maybe if I ask it, I'll tell you what your question is. You will tell me you will let me know what I mean. I wrote, how can the quest to find your passion backfire? Well, I think passion itself is something pretty dangerous. It's only in recent times that like find your passion, follow your passion has become like a, a phrase of po- positive connotations. If you if you read any of the ancient literature, 
they're constantly warning against the passions, right? Um, that they, they thought passions were like somebody who's very passionate, they saw as being dangerous. That's someone who's not in control of themselves. That's the, the passions were considered dangerous, extreme emotions. And so I think when people say find your passion, what they really mean or what they really should mean is find your purpose. To me, purpose is passion. I said this to someone the other day. Uh, pa- purpose is like passion with a brain. You know, mm. passion's like all heart. And obviously, heart is important. But if it's if that if it's not um, rational in some way, or it's not ordered, or it's not directed in a positive way, we all know that that you know those those sort of emotions can overwhelm other people, and they can overwhelm ourselves. Um, it, you know, when you're sort of madly, irrationally in love with someone, that's not a great thing to be because you're not actually seeing that person for who they are. It's not that love is bad, but taking anything to that extreme is dangerous. And so um, one of the examples I do in the book is Christopher McCandless, um, who's the kid in the, the book Into the Wild. He was super passionate about the wild. And he, you know, he leaves high school and he goes off into the wild and we're you know, we're, we want teenagers to admire this like young kid who bravely does this thing, but he dies in the end. Like right. he goes into Alaska and he's not remotely prepared for this life and he dies because he eats these poisonous berries. Um, and that to me is the embodiment of the dangers of passion. He didn't have a plan. Right. Yeah. So it seems like when we're trying to keep our ego in check, self-reflection is so important. How do you incorporate self-reflection into your life? Do you do you meditate? Do you journal? I mean, how can we become more aware of our own actions and behaviors and thoughts? I think like most people, I wish that I meditated more than I actually do. <laughs> um, I do it. I do it sometimes. Um, I journal every morning. Um, I write. Uh, the, the Stoics talk about this too. Sort of write a reflection of what you did the day before, what you could do better, um, what you wish you had done differently, um, mistakes that you made, things that you're pleased with, uh, maybe bits of wisdom that you heard. So I, I write that down and I find that to be very um, beneficial. And then I find that my sort of meditative, reflective part of my day is doing some form of strenuous exercise. So a long run or long swim, something where my brain is turned off. But they've done interesting studies that when when one is doing repetitive motions, um, the brain functions a little bit differently and it can start to sort of think about things from a different perspective. And so I find that I have a lot of my best ideas or I remember that, hey, I should I should reach out to so-and-so or, hey, I should apologize to someone for this or, hey, this is why I've been in such a bad mood lately. I find that my brain unlocks those things when I'm when I'm working out. Right. I I feel the same thing when I'm working out, but really also if I have to clean anything. <laughs> well, like, that's also a repetitive motion. Yeah, exactly. And that's the only like reason I'll clean because I hate cleaning. But if I can tell myself, well, y- you know, you can kind of work out something in your mind. I find it doing- really helpful. You're not doing anything else, right? You're not like right. cleaning and answering emails. Right, uh, exactly. And, and so like I think take the other thing is like if I feel really stuck or stressed, like I'll take a long walk and I don't consider the walk exercise. Like in my journal every morning, I write how much I worked out. Um, I don't consider the walking part of I don't consider walking to be exercise. I consider it to be 
something that's good for my health, but more for mental rather than physical reasons. Right, right. Something else that I want to talk about, which I loved reading about, was this alive time and dead time. Okay. So can you, I know this is a concept that you got, you got from Robert Greene, right? Mm-hmm. Can, you yeah. ex- can you explain it to us? Well, I was, I guess I would have been 24, 23, 24, and I'd, I'd, I'd worked for American Apparel for a number of years, and I was deciding, I, I decided that I wanted to write a book and that I wanted to leave in about a year. And, and I, I wasn't going to leave for a year or six months because I wanted to, I needed to save up some money. Um, I needed to put more time in. Like I'd only sort of gotten this promotion somewhat recently. And I knew that if I didn't do it for a while, it sort of wouldn't look that great on my resume. And so I was talking to Robert about this. And, and so he sort of said, okay, so you've decided that in one year you're going to do this other thing. So you have a choice now. This year can be a this can be dead time for you. Like you can just show up to work every day and work just hard enough not to get fired. Um, or it can be a live time and you can use this to research, to build relationships, to um, try new things. You know, you can use the safety of your position to make this one of the most uh, valuable years of your life. And he says, this is a live time or dead time. And I remember I actually wrote this down on a note card and I framed it and I put it next to my desk. And so I would look at it constantly. So when I would find myself, you know, drifting off to uh, mess around on Facebook or, you know, take a long lunch or whatever, I would, I would, it would, it was a reminder, right? A live time or dead time. And, and in that year I did most of the research for the book that I was going to write. So when I did leave, it only took me like five months to write the entire book. And, um, you know, I met people, uh, that, that ended up helping me for the book. I, I, I saved up a lot of money. Like I, that year was essential and part of why I was sort of able to, to accelerate my career so rapidly when I changed courses. Right. And, and so I, I try to apply that I think Robert's advice applies not just to like, hey, you've got a year left on a contract. What are you going to do? But also when you're stuck in traffic or your flight gets delayed or a friend was going to meet you and they texted you to say they're going to be 20 minutes late. Like, what are you going to do with that time? Are you going to play Angry Birds on your phone or are you going to make the most of it? Right. And even on a greater scale, I think a lot of us uh, have found ourselves in in places where we have a desire and like and the manifestation of that desire is going to take some time. Like for, yes. for you, it was the it was staying in this job for someone else. They might be waiting for the kids to start school or totally any, anything like that. And uh, one of the things that I find myself talking about a lot because it's something I struggled with was patience. And if you are waiting and suffering, it's so much harder to be patient than being alive and being productive in that time. I think that's right. And a lot of people, they put stuff off. They're like, you know, I'm going to move to New York next year. And that's when I'm going to start writing. Or uh, when, like you said, when my kids grow up or when, um, you know, when, when I get my tax refund or whatever it is, we're waiting. And so we're just writing off huge blocks of time. But here's the thing. You never know what's going to happen, right? Um, Something could interrupt. You might never actually get to that point. So the idea is that you should 
embrace and get every possible thing you can out of the present moment. Right. It's so true. I mean, what's great about this conversation about this book is that you're also addressing something that not many people talk about, which is the consequences of success or what can happen when you begin to experience some sort of success. Why was this something that you felt was so important to address? Well, not a lot of people talk about it because everyone just talks about how awesome success is, (laughs) right? And they want to encourage other people to get it. They don't talk about the way that success changes you and, and warps your opinions. It's like, okay, if you if you're an entrepreneur and you succeed, you like made something from nothing. Or if you're like like let's say you become the world's strongest man. You like you literally outmuscled everyone else on the planet, right? Like as you do these things, you are you've 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 done something. And so then it becomes easy to try to tell yourself like that you can do anything. You know what I mean? Like, uh, let's say you have some crazy idea and then that crazy idea works. That doesn't mean that all crazy ideas are good. You know, it (laughs) just means that your one crazy idea wasn't as crazy as maybe people thought. And so I think what's so dangerous for ambitious people is when when that ambition becomes is is validated and it makes something real it's it's that we can get a sort of irrational understanding of our own abilities and we start to think like everything we do will be successful because we're amazing we have the golden touch whatever we it it makes us it puts us in a position where we very quickly overreach and do something that imperils everything we just work so hard for well, why don't we use, can you use um, American Apparel as the example here? Well, I mean, if you think about what American Apparel is, right, it's like we're going to have, we're going to make our clothes in the United States. We're going to uh, pay our workers the highest garment wages in the world. Our clothes aren't going to have any branding on them. We're going to have our own factory. We're going to own our own stores. We're going to sell T-shirts for like 30 bucks. You know, you describe all that. It's insane. You know, like. It, it's a crazy idea. And so it but it worked mm-hmm. and it worked because it's not as crazy as people think. But it's not a justification for every crazy idea. And it doesn't mean that you're some sort of genius and everything you do will work. Right. And I think that's what we see happen is that someone's craziness is validated and then they stop listening to everyone else. Like there, I I read this fascinating book about uh, the history of Beanie Babies not that long ago. Um, And it's called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble. And it's actually fascinating because the guy that made it was this creative genius who invented these toys that shouldn't have made any sense. And somehow they sold billions of dollars worth of them, right? And there's this famous line right before... He, he decided that he was totally going to change the direction of Beanie Babies and he was going to launch this special Beanie Baby that was like radically different than all the other ones. And everyone told him it was a terrible idea, that it wasn't going to work, and that he shouldn't do it. And I, if you read the book, there's this line where his like closest advisor says to him, they're like, I really don't think you should do this. It's not going to sell. And he says, if I put my logo on manure, people would buy it. That's how good I am, Right. Mm-hmm. And he put it out and he was wrong. Like it wasn't, that's not 
how it works. And so it was that there's a line and I don't know if you've watched the show Billions, um, which is a great show on Showtime. But in one of the episodes, he, the, the Wall Street trader, he makes this terrible trade and he loses millions of dollars. And, and his therapist asks him why. And he says, well, look, when people call you Superman for long enough, you start to think that you can fly. But you can't fly, right? That's the whole point. And so oftentimes when we have, when we're successful, it confirms our worst, most ridiculous beliefs about ourselves. And eventually those bring us crashing back down to earth. Right. Right. You know, what's so great about this is like you were talking about how you wanted to write a book about humility and you're like, no one really finds those stories that interesting. It's like the discussion that we're having now, we don't even hear it that often because nobody wants to listen to something they think is inspirational and hear, you know what, your great idea is probably not that great. Um, But it's something that needs to be heard because it's just about being you know, like you said, like in that middle, that humble, which is between thinking you're worthless and thinking that you're amazing. Well, so when I was trying to write that book about humility, like I could have I could have insisted that everyone was wrong and gone ahead with it anyway. And I think I would have made something that was okay, but it probably wouldn't have done that well. And and it's not like and what happened is that I would tell people that I was writing a book about humility and I could just sense from their reaction that something wasn't right. And so I pivoted the idea. I didn't quit it altogether. I just pivoted it to make it more palatable. And I think I've succeeded. Um, There's this great line from Neil Gaiman, um, who's a writer. And he says that, like, when someone tells you something is wrong, like about your work, they're usually right. When they tell you why or, or, or how to fix it or why it's wrong, they're usually wrong. And so that's the key. It's that ego, you know, just. Ego either listens to everyone or it listens to no one. And really, it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. It's like you got to know what feedback to listen to and what feedback to go, okay, you just don't get it yet. I need to, I need to anticipate this, but I'm going to proceed with what I know is right. Right. I love that. Well, you did succeed uh, in your quest. It's a really oh, fantastic you. book. I really enjoyed reading it. And uh, I'm so happy that you could join us. Where can people pick up your book? Um, bookstores everywhere, uh, obviously on Amazon and then my website's just ryanholiday.net. There's, there's information there as well. Isn't that so fun to say? Bookstores everywhere. Yes. (laughs) And it's funny. Be careful, ego. Just kidding. (laughs) Well, no, it's funny as an author, like you've probably seen this, like you go into bookstores and you're like, where's my book? And you're looking for it. And, but if you actually look at the numbers, like bookstores sell like, you know, 5% of all copies, but like the number one complaint that authors have to their publishers is that they can't find it like at the airport bookstore. Right. And so that, you know, that's ego too. It's like, yeah. look, I just want to see my baby like in front of, on, in the window, but you're not actually, you know, it's not based on any data. Totally. Oh, that's so true. We could have a whole discussion on that. <laughs> Ryan, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.